Hey there, Omaha. Welcome into another episode of Restaurant Hoppin'. I've got a fantastic guest for you today, but real quick before we get to them, I have to tell you about Certified Piedmontese because this is a brand I am so excited about. In fact, I will never forget the first time I had Certified Piedmontese. The crown jewel of my initial visit to Casa Bovina was a beautiful rib cap that was so lean and tender, it was almost silky in texture. The moment that beef hit my taste buds, I was hooked. These animals are raised all natural on a network of family ranches across the Midwest, so Certified Piedmontese is able to cut out the middleman and buy directly from the source. And while I highly encourage you to check out Casa Bovina, you can savor this beef at home, too. Whether you order off Piedmontese.com or by calling one 800 414-3487, your purchase will be shipped directly to your front door. Plus, when you use my discount code HOPPEN, H-O-P-P-E-N, you get 25% off your order. How can you beat that? So what are you waiting for? Get some steaks, burgers, bacon, or other meats and experience the certified Piedmontese difference for yourself today. And now, to my guest. Hey there, Omaha. Welcome into another episode of Restaurant Hoppin'. I'm your host, Dan Hoppin', and Southern hospitality and comfort food are buzzwords that get tossed around a lot when it comes to Southern cooking. But there's a restaurant in Omaha that is truly trying to bring those elements to life. It is my true pleasure today to welcome a four-time James Beard Award semifinalist to the show, Eric Gabrinowitz. He is the executive chef and... Senior Vice President of Culinary and Beverage at Tupelo Honey. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. First off, congratulations on saying my name properly. That was uh, <laughs> it's huge and not something that usually happens. It was something I've, I've heard. You've been on TV before. You've been on other podcasts. So I've heard other people oh, there we go. say your name. And so I made sure I had the pronunciation down. I mean, when I have someone of your stature on the show, you oh, got to at least get the name right. Well, I appreciate the research. That was yes, awesome. Yes, absolutely. So real quick, Tupelo Honey introduction, because this is a new restaurant to Omaha as we're recording. So Tupelo Honey, it began in Nashville, or Nashville, Asheville, North Carolina in 2000, began expanding in about 2010, and now has locations in 22 cities Soon to be 30, just mm-hmm. continues to expand and expand, which is awesome. Omaha's location is going to be just off about 10th and Harney. Mm-hmm. If you're listening to this and you're like, where is this place? I need to go experience this. So I need to talk to you about Southern food because this was something that was not in your upbringing. You were born and raised in New York. Yep. You spent a lot of your first professional years cooking in the North- Northeast. You cut your teeth working in restaurants operated by Danny Meyer who is just one of the most respected restaurateurs in the country. But, and you have an absolutely killer resume. You've, like I said, semifinalist for four James Beard Awards. Uh, you were, um, the, well, one of those was for Rising Star Chef USA, three for Best Chef North Northeast. You've got a killer resume. That's only a small portion of it. But I'm really interested in how you got into Southern cooking. And I think it, it like, the origin was it blue smoke? Yeah, for sure. So uh, when I was, I think I was 19 or 20 when I started working for Danny Meyer, um, I took an internship for him at a culinary school and then went back to work for him. Um, and Danny was, uh, I was working at Union Square Cafe. And uh, Danny was opening a restaurant called Blue Smoke. And he so happened to just tap the chef that I worked for at Union Square Cafe to be the executive chef there. Um, so he brought me along with him. I think I started there when I was 20 or 21. And uh, 
I was completely galvanized not only by the food, but by the passion of the people and their opinions on Southern food and barbecue. Um, everybody thinks theirs is the right way. Everybody thinks theirs is the only way, and it's perfect. And people get wild about it. Um, and I'm Italian, grew up in the Northeast. I understand being passionate about food. Um, and so that was just so, so crazy for me. And as a 20-year-old, knives and fire and all the things, it was, it was really one of the greatest kind of experiences of my young professional career to the point where I was like, well, I, I have to cook Southern food. So I didn't always work in the Southern food spectrum, but I was always in it. I was always obsessed by it. If we were to, uh, in a new city, that would be the first thing I would look for. Um, I just love the passion behind that food. So more so than the actual food, it's, and I'm sure you enjoy Southern food, but more so than the food itself, it's the attitude and just the, the love that's behind it. Oh, yeah. I mean, anything that you do, like anything that you immerse yourself in, you, you get energy from other people and their passion for it, whether it's sports or whatever it is. And, and so, you know, I could ho-hum cook, quote unquote, American food. Um, or I could cook something that people get really passionate about. For me, that was a challenge and something that really kind of kind of stuck with me early on. And this is something that I find really interesting because listening to another podcast, you were describing Tupelo Honey, and you said the restaurant's almost more about the hospitality than the food. It is, yeah. And I was really drawn to that line. How so? Well, you know, Southern food isn't always – if you think about the greatest Southern meal any Southerner would have – I guarantee you it would start at their grandparents' house and like with sweet tea and sitting on a rocking chair and eating a meal around family. And for me, like that's as a Southern restaurant, it's our responsibility to mimic that hospitality and that feeling. You know, you mentioned Danny Meyer. I worked for him for eight years. And one of the things he always said was, you might not remember what you ate. You might not remember what you drank, but you'll always remember how you felt there. And so for us, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard for a chef to say it's not all about the food, but it, it isn't all about the food. It's southern hospitality and southern cooking and southern food and a southern restaurant should be about how you make people feel. So how do you translate that? You said, like, what you're looking to do is you're looking to take, like, a, a family gathering and mm -hmm. translate that into a restaurant. How do you do that? So it, it starts with training. It starts with making sure that all of our team is on the same page about, you know, their ability and... Um, their ability to kind of execute that vision, right? Like be ahead of it. Uh, understand that you've got to be two steps ahead of your guests to understand what they're looking for. Um, you know, one of the things we say is we want to bring the salt and pepper to the table before you know you need it. Um, and that, that type of thing. So, and that's Southern hospitality, making people feel welcome, um, listening to your table, listening to the guest, understanding, you know, if they're there for a 20 minute business meeting and they want to be left alone and you, you execute that, that's just as good as Southern hospitality as getting a hug on the way out because you made somebody feel great. Um, so yeah, that's, that's our whole thing. Um, we preach it. We, we, we live it every day and we make sure that, you know, we read the guest as best we can and as best as they let us read them to then give them the experience that they're looking for. And that's Southern hospitality. That's beautiful. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. <laughs> How would you describe Tupelo honey to somebody who's hearing about it for the first time? So Tupelo is, is, you know, it's a quote unquote Southern restaurant, but for me, it's, it's about the experience at Tupelo. It's about really, really good food executed well, um, in a friendly and warm environment. And 
you know, we, we say this all the time, our food, we're in a, we're in a unique world right now where, you know, the foodie generation has taken off and that's been great for everybody. And, but they're still traditionalists when you come to a Southern restaurant. So try to appease the Southern grandmother with your cooking, but try to inspire the foodie to try something new or love something new. That's a really, really hard line oh, to yeah. walk. Yeah, it is really, really hard line. And I, I, you know what, you know, all we fail at it sometimes, man. Like we, we just do. Um, we think our guest wants something that they, they end up don't, they don't want, or, you know, we all signs lead to this menu item going on the menu and, and we miss on it. Um, and, and that's just part of the journey, but, um, yeah, it's a, it's a fine line to walk sometimes. So as you're crafting the menu, are you trying to create dishes that satisfy both of those groups, both the grandma who grew up, you know, on Southern cooking and the foodie who wants to, you know, ha- have something awesome that blows up on Instagram? Or yeah. are, you, are you creating dishes that are like, okay, maybe this one leans a little bit more traditional. This one we're going to have a little bit more fun with, make mm-hmm. it a little bit more modern. What, kind of what approach do you take as you're building the menu? So it's so multifaceted as far as our approach, but we start with who our guest is. So we know who our demographic is. We know who our guest is. Um, and then we look to food trends in the marketplace that um, may or may not fit what they're looking for. We do a lot of research on what our demographic is looking for when they dine out, be it quality, be it price point, be it certain foods. And then we kind of all bring it together. Um, I would say, yes, sometimes it leans, certain dishes lean more traditional and other, like, I don't know, collard greens, right? You can't really get too crazy with collard greens. You got to make them traditional. But in the other end of it, you know, we have a waffle that we stuff with mac and cheese and then, you know, put fried chicken on top. Like that's a little fun and playful. And, um, yeah, it's, it doesn't have to be that every menu item speaks to both, but it does have to be that every one of the people in our demographic and that comes to our restaurant has something that will excite them. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, I feel like the term Southern food is something that's just kind of tossed around and, and people have like a general idea, oh, that's fried chicken, it's mm-hmm. collard greens, it's stuff like that. But it's not as simple as having that big of a blanket term. Like food in New Orleans is vastly different than what you'll find in North Carolina, which is different from what you'll find in South Carolina and Tennessee and Mississippi. And Texas, yeah. And Texas. Is there any specific region or any specific southern cuisine that you i mean probably more north carolina because mm-hmm. that's where tupelo honey started but is there any specific region that you kind of find yourself pulling from more often we root ourselves in appalachia so the appalachian mountains in uh north carolina so a lot of you know all of the ingredients that come from there a lot of preservation methods that come from there that sort of thing but it, what does make my job easier is that i can pull from so many different vastly different cuisines that all fit under that same umbrella. So we do have, you know, barbacoa from Tex-Mex type of stuff. We do have, um, we're working on red beans and rice and andouille po' boys right now from New Orleans. Um, some of my favorite dishes have been inspired by the low country in South Carolina, like Gullah kind of cuisine, um, which a lot of people don't know about. But yeah, and they're all vastly different. And that's fun and it makes my job a lot easier to be able to pull from different areas gives you a little bit bigger canvas Mm -hmm. to paint on yeah i mean you know it'd be the same way of an italian chef pulling from different regions of italy right the vastly different way they cook in sicily as opposed to in uh you know turin so um it's the same kind of thing i know something that tupelo honey really focuses on is not only showcasing ingredients that are from 
the Asheville region, but finding ways to incorporate local ingredients from the different communities mm-hmm. that it opens up restaurants in. Are there any breweries or uh, local farms or anything like that that you've found here in Nebraska or in the surrounding areas that you're going to be tapping? Yeah, it's funny. Um, I don't drink as much as I used to, and this is the first uh, restaurant I've actually hand off to um, – uh, my number two, which is uh, uh, her name is Lindsay Ferris Felty. She's incredible. She just became our corporate beverage director about a year ago, and she is kind of taking the beverage program and running with it. We send her to Omaha for three days to just drink at breweries and like figure out what's going on in the scene. It's the greatest part of our <laughs> I was job. Say, yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah, I do it too once in a while, but um, but she really excels at it. And I don't, I can't tell you the specific uh, beers that are on the menu right now, but I know we have at least nine or ten different local beers and breweries and ciders. Um, But I will say her excitement level in Omaha drinking the beers and and the local products has never been better. Um, And and she was so excited when – I mean, I have 500 text messages about um, Galactical Cider or this place or that place, and I was like, that's – really sweet um so yeah we're we're fully immersed in it we love this area i was telling you before we got on air like i could live here man like this is a it's a cool place and a food scene is such a big part of that for me that uh just speaks to the work that all your producers are doing uh your food producers beer and wine and all that i want to get into that a little bit more because you had a quote when you were describing your role on another podcast you said i get paid to come to a town and eat and drink and see what is that town yeah which that just sounds like Nirvana it, to me. It is Nirvana. <laughs> I know yeah. your job isn't that simple, but it, to think about that, I'm just like, oh, man, I, think I would it, love it, that. It starts with we know who we are, and maybe a new community might not know who we are. So we we will get the first look out of um, how we'll fit in. Um, will we respond? Will the demographic that's here respond to us? Uh, what's the pricing like, you know, comparatively, so we know that we're priced appropriately for the market. Like, you know, we're in 22 different markets and tolerance for certain price points are, are they really vast, they're vast and they vary. Um, so we want to make sure we're in the right sweet spot and we're not, you know, being something that we're not. So um, I come for two to three days. We meet with vendors along the way, which is the real part of the job. So we meet with the local breweries, we meet with the local um, purveyors and the sort that we're going to work with when we get here. And all the while, I kind of eat and drink around town and uh, get excited for what's here. And and I was very excited when I was here. Well, I think you made a reference again. I keep mm-hmm. referencing other podcasts, yeah, but, but you did a very good job on those. Like you talked about how cod is super popular in the Midwest and the Northeast and in the South, they won't touch it. Mm -hmm. So that's something that you can kind of suss out a little bit on one of these scouting journeys is you can come to a place and be like, man, I'm seeing a lot of cod on menus. Maybe that's something we can incorporate here. So yeah, a hundred percent. That's exactly what I do. So yeah, I mean, I make it sound really fun and, and interesting, but I just get to go and eat and drink, but that's what I'm, I'm getting behind is like, yeah, in, in the South cod is a trash fish that nobody really knows or celebrates on a menu, but in every fine dining restaurant in New York, it's on their menu. Um, sustainable cod, whatever, which is great. Um, but I'll give you a great example. We opened in Milwaukee, um, maybe two years ago. And, um, we always ask the questions when we're here meeting with the vendors is like, what do we have to have on our menus in Milwaukee in order for everyone to want to come here? Or what, what, what's the one dish that if we don't have it, no one will come. 
And usually nobody gives us an answer that's, you know, impactful. In Milwaukee, every one of the vendors we met with said the same thing. Fish fry on Friday. I knew it, yeah. <laughs> and and so, so the first day of meetings, that was the answer from everybody. So the second day of meetings I had, I asked the question, if we didn't have a fish fry, what would you do if you walked into my restaurant on a Friday night? And eight out of nine said we would leave and go somewhere that had it. Wow. And so I just called, I called my boss, the CEO, and I was like, we got to come up with a fish fry. Like we, we try to just be who we are. We try to not overextend ourselves with what other markets are because we know that, for instance, we opened in Texas uh, with a steak program because beef, Texas, you know, whatever. But people came to us for fried chicken and tripping grits because that's what we do well. So we try not to kind of lean into that world too much. But here it was a necessity. We would have lost revenue drastically if we didn't. And we came up with a pretty cool fish fry, which was awesome, um, and I got really excited about it and super creative. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's part of that whole mantra and, and one of the reasons we visit before we get here. I mean, obviously, our real estate team, our CEO comes, and they pick the location, um, and they're really involved in it. But those are the nuances that kind of takes a foodie or a food person to get, you know. That's probably a little bit more of a dramatic example. It is, yeah. But was there anything like that that you discovered in Omaha? Like, as you kind of ate around and, and talked to local purveyors and, you know, talked to your team on the ground here, was there anything in Omaha that kind of stood out? So not from a food standpoint, but something that the, the level of kindness and hospitality here is above and beyond almost any city I've been to. Um, and I'm not, I'm not just saying that. Like, it's real. It's The people are super nice. They're super helpful. And that speaks volumes to us because we know that what we bring to the table and what we're trying to achieve will fit right in. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't know that there was any one thing like a fish fry as an extreme example, but um, yeah, I think it was literally, it wasn't about the food. It was literally about the hospitality and the care that you guys put into everything that you do. I know that you guys have uh, something that you call an MSA score, a one to a hundred mm-hmm. score for how you feel like a Tupelo honey could fit into a certain market. I'm not asking you to tell me what Omaha's score I was. I don't it. know if you, yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, I don't know if you even remember it, but it, what was it about this market? What is it about Omaha that attracted Tupelo honey and kind of got Omaha on your radar? So the way we look at real estate is um, a little bit old school and a little bit new school. And the way I, the way I kind of describe it is a, a baseball man, right? Like you've got the old timey scouts that can tell if somebody's going to hit 40 home runs a year, but then you've got the analytics department that will tell you if they're really going to hit 40 home runs a year, you know? And that's kind of the approach that we take. So you mentioned the MSA stuff, um, which is all real and it's, you know, data driven and analytics about what a market is, what it's going to be in five years. Um, is our demographic that we know is uh, loyal to Tupelo? Are they here in this market? Um, the answer to that all is yes. Um, but really, the old school method, and our CEO is awesome, and he's picked some amazing locations for real estate, and he just kind of has a knack of picking the right areas to, that will do well in. Um, he looks for cranes in the sky. You know, like, it, are you growing? Is this city growing? Is it is it tired? Is it not tired? Is it... Um, is there a buzz about the new development that's going on here? And you look around Omaha, there's a ton of cranes in the sky. Um, everybody's happy. Everybody's excited about us coming here. It just, it all made sense. So MSA score be damned. Um, you know, there's certain things that are just, we know, we know we're going to do well here. We're really excited about it. 
Okay, let's let's tease some taste buds and, and sure. talk about a few menu items. And we got to start with the fried chicken because yep. I heard this ta- this recipe took a year and a half. Yep. to develop. That's true. That is a lot of time for for one recipe. But obviously, it's something. If you're doing southern cooking, you gotta nail it. If you don't have good fried chicken, you may as well close your doors right now. I so couldn't agree more. What like kind of take me through that process as you're starting to develop and you're like, okay, I gotta have a killer fried chicken. How do you get from, okay, we're starting our R and D to this is, this is it. This is what we're putting on the menu. So I can speak to it pretty bluntly because I didn't create this recipe. Um, I joined Tublo seven years ago. The fried chicken went on the menu seven years and six months ago. Mm. So as they were transitioning from one chef to eventually me, they hired a consulting chef, uh, local to Asheville. who's very well known and, and recognized there. Um, and he just made fried chicken for a year and a half. And when I say just made fried chicken, he tried every bird that was available, every size of bird that was available, every type of fryer available, every type of fryer oil available, every type of dredge, dust, whatever. I mean, when you start adding up the amount of variables that go into fried chicken, like there was a year and a half's worth of work there, um, which sounds crazy, but if you know anything about us is we love we, we might not always get to perfection, but that's what we strive for every time. So when we have a controlled environment where we know we want the end product to be the best it's ever been, it doesn't matter if it took two months or 12 months or five years, we wouldn't have launched it until it was perfect. Um, and so I came in and I was like, damn, this is good fried chicken. Um, but And then since I've learned the process and it's it's been pretty good. But yeah, we have um, we, we use pressure fryers, a certain... Um, time and temperature, a certain type of oil, a certain type of dredge, a certain type of everything. Um, the chicken size is actually one of the most important things in it because um, you don't realize it. You know, like you go to the grocery store, you can get a, a breast that's 10 ounces or a breast that's 5 ounces, and you don't really quite think about it until you get home. Here, it's like it is so important to the cook time and to everything about it. We also um, – we make it takes so long to cook fried chicken like that. That's always been the thing. If you open fry fried chicken in a in an open fryer and just drop it, it could take twenty twenty two minutes. Um, pressure fryer takes a little a little bit less. So one of the most important things was how can we make sure it's fresh for every guest all along, like at all times. And we ended up uh, finding a unit that is specifically for our fried chicken. So big, imagine one big refrigerator type looking thing in our kitchens that is only purpose is to hold the fried chicken because it stays crispy on the outside, moist on the inside for 30 minutes. So we know we have 16 minutes to cook it and 30 minutes to sell it. Um, it is, I'll say it, I mean it. And I, if our fried chicken is done to spec and right, um, by our team and obviously sometimes we miss, but it is the best fried chicken hands down that I have ever had. And I've never had anything close to it. Fair enough. Yeah. We'll have to That's try it. high expectations I'm setting ourselves <laughs> up for. But I'm just saying that is my personal opinion. And as the chef, I'm allowed to say that? No. But, uh, yeah, it's it's good, man. And so when it's done and it's crispy and it's beautiful, we've just developed this uh, spice mix. So it's dry. Um, is this bee dust? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's I can't tell you the ingredients, but it is um, basically dehydrated, pulverized honey, and a ton of spices. That sounds um, amazing. Oh, it's incredible. <laughs> and we, we puree it into a fine powder. And so the fried chicken comes out, of, uh, and it's like, you know, sizzling and whatever, and we pour this powder on it, and you can't see it. But then you take a bite, and it's like sweet and spicy and all of these unique flavors. Um, it's pretty awesome. So 
and maybe the fried chicken isn't the best example because you weren't intimately involved with mm-hmm. this one, but I'm sure we can apply this to other dishes sure. as well. When you're talking about a recipe that's developed over such a long period of time, and I mean, you talked about there's so many variables that are being tested. I mean, I can't even imagine how many pieces of fried chicken <laughs> that that consulting chef tested. Like, how do you, and, and you said you don't always reach perfection, but how do you know, like, when you reach the end product where it's like, yep, this is it. This is the one that's going to go on the menu after variation, 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 all these tests. When, when do you know, like, yes, this is it. We found it. Well, the, I think there haven't been many examples over the years of something as long as the fried chicken. So right. um, I'll kind of speak to our R and D process for our menu. So our entire restaurant group in the last two weeks has rolled out a menu for the winter. Um, we do about two menu changes a year, give or take, um, just to bring in some seasonality. Um, that said, we are already done with the R&D process and tied up with a bow for our spring menu. Um, so the process itself takes about 26 weeks, just about six months. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a matter of starting with X and then knocking off variables until you get to Y. Um, we have... You know, your very specific question is, how do we know when it is? So our, we have a tasting panel, um, which is the CEO, COO, myself, the corporate beverage director. Um, when the CEO, his name is Steve Rabatori, he's awesome, um, and also owner, uh, when he says, that is slap yo mama good, <laughs> that is when we know we have reached perfection. Um, and so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's not an exact science. It's a slap your mama that we're waiting for, and we get it. Uh, quite often, we just got it on eleven new dishes that are going to hit the menu in spring. So, is there? So we won't talk about the spring yeah, yeah. yet because th- this is coming out in the fall. Are there any other dishes other than the fried chicken that you want to tease right now that you're really excited about? Yeah, our chicken and waffles are amazing. So it's a, a very similar process with the fried chicken um, to our bone-in fried chicken, which is the signature. Um, but this is uh, these are thighs that are marinated and then dredged in bee dust and put on waffles. Um, and we do this really cool dish, which is a waffle stuffed with mac and cheese and then refried, not refried like in a fryer, but like regriddled till it gets crispy. So the mac and cheese kind of gets gooey inside the waffle. Um, and then we spice that chicken a little bit further with what we call Asheville hot chicken dust, um, drizzle with ranch and pickles. Sounds interesting. It is so good. Um, yeah, so chicken and waffles is, is probably our spot. Um, we do a lot of learning along the way, and this is, this is a great example as to like pulling from different regions of southern food. Um, there's a dish in New Orleans called Debris. Um, debris, if you've ever had a po' boy, have you ever been to New Orleans? I have. Okay. If you ever had a po' boy in New Orleans, they have Debris po' boys, which is basically um, the restaurant was called Mother's. It's still there. It's 120 years old. They would slice the meat for the po' boys and put it on the po' boy. But at the end of the day, they would take the shavings from the slicer, mix it with gravy, and spread that on the po' boy for their staff. Oh, come on. So it was debris, debris, right? And it's like gravy and beef and deliciousness. So I was like, I want to mimic that. Like, let's, we can do that. So we did. I mean, spoiler alert, nobody knew what debris was. So it was a lot of education to the guest, which became a lot. I was like, well, what? What can I get through to the guest with this delicious thing that is just so good, but we'll get them to try it? And I said, well, what's the other type of thing in that one? Oh, barbacoa. Barbacoa is a buzzword, 
people know it. I mean, when Chipotle puts it out, everybody knows it now, right? Um, and so I said, well, I'm going to make that debris, but I'm going to make it in the style of a very traditional barbacoa with Chipotle and, and uh, deep pasilla peppers and all of that stuff. Um, and we did and put it on the menu, and it is selling eight times better than debris ever did. Um, and it's really that kind of delicious thought process. So, yeah, take a dish from New Orleans that didn't quite work and, and kind of tweak it a little bit with another region, and now you have a dish that's just selling out, out of control. And, uh, yeah, it's really good. So if you come to Tupelo, and I know you will, get the fried chicken and get the barbacoa po'boy. Okay. And I, and I love that, that answer that you just had because it goes back to what we were talking about earlier and what – Yes, you're grounded in Appalachian mm -hmm. cooking, but you're able to draw from these other southern regions and even kind of bring them together. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to use the fusion word, but you're able to create a dish that celebrates multiple regions and multiple cooking styles as opposed to, nope, we're just sticking in this one area and doing this thing. I, I think that that's absolutely yeah, beautiful. I mean, it is fusion. It's just not cross-cuisine. It's cross-regional. Right. Um, and that's you know, that's what southern food is. Um, and maybe not. At your southern grandmother's house, she's got her one way, and that's it. She's not making barbacoa and debris if she's in the, the Appalachian Mountains. But, uh, yeah, I mean, southern food means something different to so many people. And so we have that great ability to pull from all those different levers. Hey there, listeners. We'll get back to my guest in a minute, but I got to remind you one more time about certified Piedmontese. Anyone who listens to this podcast or follows me on social media knows that I enjoy my fair share of decadent meals and delicious desserts. And that's why it's really important to me to eat really clean between big meals. And that is one of the main reasons I love certified Piedmontese. Piedmontese cattle have extra muscle mass, which allows them to maintain a rich tenderness without much fatty marbling. In fact, ounce for ounce, certified Piedmontese beef has fewer calories and more protein than salmon. Don't believe that healthy food can taste this good? Just try it. When you order off CertifiedPiedmontese.com, use the promo code HOPPEN, that's my last name, H-O-P-P-E-N, for 25% off your order. You will taste the difference for yourself. If you are looking for steak, roasts, tenderloins, bacon, and more, check out CertifiedPiedmontese.com and experience the Certified Piedmontese difference today. And now, back to my guest. Your start in uh, cooking, or in restaurants at least, I believe was as a dishwasher at age 14. Mm -hmm. Was that just a job that ended up, you just kept going, or I'm, did you fall in love with it? What, yeah, what's it was the, a little bit all of that. Um, actually, my first job, I was 12 years old, and I stocked coolers at a deli okay. but, uh, for $4 an hour. Nice. I got four hours a week. So <laughs> that was my first job. But my first real restaurant job, I was 14. Um, and in my hometown there, uh, which is Montgomery, New York, about an hour north of New York City, um, they, it was, uh, they celebrated General Montgomery, who the town was named after. And they basically shut down the town for the day. And about 30,000, 40,000 people would flood the town. And we would have a big celebration all day. And um, the restaurants were just incredibly overloaded and busy that day. And there was nothing they could do. And one of the restaurant owners was a friend of my father's. And he was complaining to my dad that he just didn't have anybody to wash dishes. And my dad said, well, Eric will do it. And, of course, that's the day that I want to hang out with my friends and, you know, run around like a lunatic. It's kind of that, like, get out of jail free card day where you can do whatever you want. Um, so I kicked and screamed and, and got angry about it. Um, and my father said to me, it was a great lesson I learned. He was like, cool, now you're going to do it and you're going to give me the money because you're complaining and I'm giving you this job to make some money. So you're going for the five-hour shift and then you're going to hand me the money. Sure enough, like, 
I went and I worked and I loved it and I got $25 for my five-hour shift and I handed it to my father. He never gave it back to me. And I love that. Uh, <laughs> I'm hoping to parent that way with my children right now. Um, uh, but uh, I, never, I never not worked another weekend from that, that time. Like, I just loved it. There were knives and fire and cursing and all the things that a 14-year-old boy is just like, oh, what's going on here? It was really cool. So I started as a dishwasher within six months. I was cooking on the line. A year later, I was cooking in the kitchen by myself. Now, it was a bar. Um, it was nothing special. It was, uh, well, actually, it, it was special, but it was nothing like culinarily crazy. Um, and the owner was great, and he took to me. And um, when he saw a passion for what we were doing and how excited I was, he decided that he was going to make me work every Sunday evening till 8 o'clock or whatever it was. And in between lunch and dinner, he would go to the grocery store, pull up an old French recipe, buy the ingredients, and we would cook that recipe together every Sunday. That's so, awesome. Oh, my God. So I cooked. At 14 years old, I cooked beef bourguignon and Mornay sauce, all the mother sauces, everything like that. And just I kind of, you know, while in between cooking chicken fingers and mozzarella sticks, I was starting to learn and get immersed in that world. Um, I took the prospective student tour at the Culinary Institute of America when I was 14 um, and just knew immediately knew it's what I wanted to do. Um, and thank God I've been pretty good at it for a little bit because <laughs> <laughs> if I sucked at it, it this, would, this would not have gone well. I wouldn't be sitting here. So this explains how at, at age 19 you're already working in Danny Meyer restaurants yeah. is you had the, just this this special experience. You know, this guy kind of took you under his wing and he was did. like, I, I see some potential here. You know, between that, I, I, I'm incredibly lucky and incredibly blessed. But between that and, uh, you know, we were talking about the importance of purveyors just a few minutes ago. We, one of the kids I grew up with that was on my baseball team, his parents owned a farm. That farm serviced New York City's green markets, which sold to all of the best chefs in the country. And they said to me when I was 15 or 14, they were like, come work with us for the summer. We'll introduce you to every chef that walks through the green market. Mario Batali, Wayne Nish, Sean George, uh, Michael Romano, Danny Meyer, Dan Silverton, all of these guys uh, would come through. And sure enough, they'd be like, hey, this guy, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that's how I got my job as an internship with, uh, with Danny in Unisquare Cafe. But um, it's, it's all about respecting the circle. The food world is so large and so small at the same time um, that if you do the right thing and you are passionate about it, you mind your P's and Q's and you just work hard, all of that will kind of take care of itself a little bit. Mm -hmm. So. You mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into it in that, I mean, if anyone in the restaurant community is known for hospitality, mm -hmm. it's Danny Meyer. Yeah. I mean, his book, Setting the Table, is like the Bible for most most chefs or, or restaurateurs. And you worked for several of his restaurants, not just um, uh, Union Square Cafe and Blue Smoke, but... As you look back, especially in your formative years, I mean, we're talking about a restaurant, you know, you, you say now, like even more so than the food, it's about what Tupelo Honey is about what uh, what people feel there. What did you learn in those formative years working at Danny's restaurants that you feel like has really inspired you and allows you to kind of create that Southern hospitality today? Well, first off, I'll say for anybody that's read that book or anybody that knows Danny Meyer or knows of Danny Meyer and the way he's portrayed, um, it's all true. Danny is 
one of the nicest human beings I've ever met in my life. Um, he is compassionate. He is incredibly smart. He is a perfectionist as well. He takes care of everyone that there is to take care of in his organization. Um, a quick story. I'm a huge Mets Go fan. Go for it. Huge Mets fan. Um, the Mets, so Danny, I was 19 at the time. Uh, I think it was 2000. Yeah, 2000. I was an intern working the oyster station at 7 o'clock in the morning. So it was oysters and a couple of sandwiches or whatever. And uh, the lowest of the low on the totem pole in the kitchen. And um, Danny comes in to the restaurant, starts talking to the sous chef, saying hi, hugs, the whole thing. And he's looking around the kitchen. I'd never met Danny before. I barely knew who he was at the time. Um, and he sees my Mets hat on. And he walks over to me and he goes, hey, champ, um, just uh, you doing anything tonight? And I said, no, Danny, why? He hands me two tickets and he goes, I don't want to see my team lose in New York. I don't want to see my team lose tonight in New York. So these are for you. So the Mets were playing the Cardinals game five of the NLCS. Oh, my God. And um, so I was like, oh, OK, great. I took the tickets at the time. It's 2000. They were $250 face value. Um, God, I can't even imagine what they would go for now. Um, and so myself and one of the other cooks went to the game that night. I watched the Mets win the pennant um, from Danny seats, which were like right behind home plate, whatever it was. Um, and then, so fast forward seven years later, I'm now leaving Danny to open my own restaurant. Um, and Danny comes with a big bottle of crude champagne and whatever. And, and, uh, he, they're giving me a little send off in between lunch and dinner. It was super nice. Um, and so, you know, I said, you know, Bubba was my nickname in New York. So I said, Bubba, is there anything you'd like to say? And I start to thank Danny and I'm like getting choked up right now. Um, and I, I tell that story and he had no idea that that was me. And all of a sudden Danny's in the corner crying, like just hysterically sobbing because it, it's those little things that just make somebody's day that you won't think twice about the next day, but somebody has been thinking about it for seven years. Um, and I think that's what I learned from Danny and that's what totally you know, inspires the way we look at Southern hospitality and the way we look at what we do for other people is hospitality starts with a connection. It's a one-on-one -on -one connection. And sometimes you don't realize how powerful a little connection like that becomes and how much it does for somebody along the way. And so that to me is the epitome of Southern hospitality. So long way to get around it is I really learned how to make people feel good. And I really am inspired by how much I can do to how much we can do as Tupelo, how much power we have to impact somebody's day and maybe their next seven years. I don't know. I'm not handing out tickets to the NLCS <laughs> or anything or the College World Series, but there, there are little that's, – if that's the mind frame you have, uh, mindset that you have as to how can you impact someone's day in a positive manner, then that's, that's Southern hospitality. That's it. What an incredible story! Thanks, man. man I, I had what no an idea. That, ramble, but uh, no, I I love a ramble that was fantastic. Yeah. So, I, I'm curious because you 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 say you start working at Blue Smoke, and this is kind of when your your eyes are opened to Southern hospitality, Southern mm -hmm. cooking. This is when you get interested. But you had a lot more stops between that and Tupelo, and, and we could, I mean, I could talk to you for hours uh, about your different stops at Tabla. Tavern uh, at the Highlands, Restaurant North. Unfortunately, we're limited on time, yeah, so yeah. I'm going to jump ahead to 2016. Okay. How did Tupelo Honey get on your radar, how, and how did this opportunity arise for you? So uh, in 2016, I had owned my restaurant, Restaurant North, for six-ish years. 
Um, and in that six years, my wife finished her doctorate. Uh, we bought a house. We had two children. Um, a little and bit of life change. A, uh, so much life change. And a dog who's still with us, God bless. Um, and it was, it was getting to be to the point where my kids, who were still young at the time, just didn't accept the fact that dad, daddy would never be home for dinner. Like it just, he was never home for dinner. Anybody that knows the restaurant life knows how hard it is, but anybody who's owned a restaurant as an owner operator knows that that is your life. Um, and so I was starting to kind of realize that family is a little bit more important um, than, you know, the accolades or the James Beard Awards and all of that stuff. And, uh, and I made a conscious effort to start just opening my horizons to look around. Um, Tupelo reached out to me. It was the first kind of job that I had uh, even entertained. And it just seemed like a perfect opportunity. I loved the food. I loved what they did. Um, if you ever, and this was 2016, I started Googling everything about Asheville that I could just because if I'm going to move from New York, I'm born and raised there. It's this is pretty drastic change. I want to make sure it's the right move. Well, if you look up any list in, in uh, Asheville top things to do, eating at Tupelo Honey is on every top 10 list. Um, was at the time, still is. And like uh, no other city had that. And so there was this really like fierce loyalty to that brand in that market. And, and I was enamored by that fact because I, I couldn't imagine that happening anywhere else, right? Like New York City, yeah, Union Square Cafe was the number one restaurant, but it's not on a top 10 list of things to do in New York City. Maybe that's a poor example, but um, so I came down to visit and it, it was true, man. They, the community in Asheville loves Tupelo Honey. The community um, is so supportive of it. And so since then, we've just kind of expanded outward and um, trying to bring that to everybody. Um, so obviously you were a fan of Southern food. You, you cooked Southern food professionally, mm -hmm. but it's one thing to to have that knowledge and then to take this thing that is so beloved mm -hmm. in this city and all of a sudden become the VP of culinary there. I mean, what kind of a crash course did you have to put yourself on to level up your game? The amount of mistakes that I made. <laughs> and the, there's a few. Um, so the, the hierarchy in Tupelo, uh, as far as operations are concerned, is we have um, senior regional directors that kind of oversee the, the general P&Ls for the restaurants. And then we have a culinary director. So basically like the go-to culinary guy for every five to six stores or restaurants. Um, and there are some of them that are still with us from then. And like the general lack of understanding that I had for how to operate a restaurant like Tupelo differently than a fine dining restaurant, I'm surprised I made it. Um, we made a ton of mistakes. So you take in the fact that like, I didn't totally understand the operational elements of this restaurant, which is very nuanced. And then on top of that, I started messing with some Southern dishes that people were like, who is this crazy New Yorker? <laughs> I changed the mac and cheese. Uh, it was one of the first things that I did while I was there because blue smoke had an incredible mac and cheese. So I was trying to mimic that. Um, and their mac and cheese was very well different. Um, it was like just a really fine, uh, beautiful cheese sauce mixed with the pasta brulee really quickly, just bubbly and whatever. But Southern Appalachian mac and cheese is baked with breadcrumbs and it's not as gooey and ooey. Well, I was like, well, I've never had this before, so it can't be that good. Took it off the menu, changed to the other one. 
man, I thought I was going to get lynched. I really did. Like the, the blowback from the customers was incredible. How could you do this? Our view scores went down. So I immediately, we changed it back immediately. Everything kind of stabilized. And, and I just learned a really valuable lesson. It was like, if you're going to mess with it, do your research, make, make sure you understand everything about it and why people are passionate about it and make sure what you're doing respects that and is 10 times better than what you're putting out. Um, and so that's kind of the mantra I have now. If I ever want to change anything that is quote unquote traditional Southern, I make sure that we are immersed in that decision and what we're putting out respects that decision, respects that food and is better by a long shot or else we just don't do it. I apologize if I'm putting you on the spot, no. but do you have an example, like a positive example of that, of, of something where you're like, okay, I want to make this change, but I also want to respect this dish. And you were able to do your research and pull it off successfully. Yeah. Um, I, one of the, one of the things that I think, um, so collard greens, our collard greens were there. I believe they were collard, collard and turnip greens. When, when I first came on the menu, it was very plain and simple recipe. Um, and so we looked at, okay. All, in all the regions that serve collard greens, what are the corresponding ingredients? What are the corresponding flavor profiles? Every, almost everything had a pork element, or maybe it didn't. Every, almost everything had a, a vinegar and a sugar element to kind of finish at the end. And then we just made sure that we took what it was, made it better, respected all of those different elements of what the dish should be. And we have, I think our collards are incredible. Um, and I think, and the cooking method too, right? Like, Maybe you get collards in the South that aren't cooked down, cooked down, cooked down all that much. They're a little brighter and crisper, but there's certain regions where when you cook them down, they're just like they sing. And that's, so it's, it's not just the ingredients, but also the cook method. So our collards, if they're right and when they're right in our stores are just cooked down, super, super tender, glazed in this liquid of um, just chicken broth and bacon and sugar and vinegar. And it just, it should sing uh, when you eat it, and that wasn't what it was before. So that's a positive example. I'm trying to think of any others. No. Okay, we can we can stop at collards. I mean, that was yeah. a fantastic example. Thanks. So you mentioned you you kind of had these two layers of ways that you had to adjust yourself, and mm -hmm. you even just said like, "I'm surprised that I made it." Yeah. I imagine those first couple months, maybe even longer than that, almost, you know, you just feel like you're drowning in new information. At what point did you start to feel like, okay, I've got a handle on this. I, I, I think I'm going to be okay. <laughs> you know, it was, it was kind of an all encompassing change when I came on board. So the origin of Tupelo honey was that it was a very, um, you know, you don't have diners in North Carolina. But it was kind of the late night diner spot, right? If you grew up in in um, in the late '90s, early 2000s, and in, uh, in in Asheville, you went to Tupelo Honey at two o'clock in the morning after a night of drinking and had eggs and you know and hash browns and stuff. And so when uh, Steve Frabator, the owner and CEO, took it over in 2008, um, he you know was slowly changing it to make it a little bit less dinery and a little bit more casual dining. Um, and we all decided in the leadership team at the time, the board of directors decided, um, about the time that I came on board that they wanted to elevate what we were doing. Um, because if we elevated the level, elevated the food, then we could elevate the price point a little bit and see how that worked. So we went from 
what was a lower-end casual dining restaurant to what we were shooting for to be fine casual. We brought in halibut and lobster and different um, steak cuts and things like that, um, and they brought me in at the same time to elevate it. So the directive that I was given straight away was, do your fine dining thing, just make it a little bit more approachable. Um, and those mistakes of, again, understanding the operations of what they could execute and what, what they couldn't, not because of the per person, but for the setup, um, was a huge learning curve. But at the same time, Tupelo was learning who they were. They tried to push in this direction of, of maybe a little bit higher price point, maybe a little bit finer food. And we realized that that tribal loyalty guest that, that, that loves us didn't want anything to do with that. They just wanted Tupelo to be really great. So they didn't need the late night diner part of it, but they needed Tupelo to respect Southern food and be really good and be at a approachable price point that they could eat at multiple times a week. And I think, so I think everybody was learning so much in that time period that maybe it glossed over how terrible of a job I did <laughs> with the mac and cheese. Um, but I made it and uh, yeah. And God, I've been there. The, this month is seven years. Congratulations. Thanks. I appreciate it. So, the, I mean, not only is this a transition for you location-wise, but it was a big transition, like, role-wise. You know, mm -hmm. you're going from being in the kitchen every day, all the time, to where you're not seeing your kids, to where you're at a little bit more of an executive level. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found this quote from you. You said, I learned that the recipe and seasoning changes I could make on a whim in an independent restaurant wouldn't bring success in a multi-unit environment. Here at Tupelo. I must be intentional and specific. A recipe needs to be tested and tried before it's delivered to the entire team. What was that learning curve like for you? How difficult was Tremendous. that for you to go from being a kitchen chef who's making adjustments on the fly to refining recipes and then teaching them to others? You know, one of the things that drew Tupelo to me in the early stages was that I was at a restaurant that was you know, every day we were trying to be cutting edge and we were trying to push the envelope, but we didn't have a recipe book. Um, if something had to be made and I wasn't there to make it, I better have shown the sous chef the day before how to make it. Um, and that is a terrible way to operate and run a restaurant. I've learned that now. Um, and Tupelo, to their credit, they're just so smart and they're so, um, you know, dialed in as to how to operate uh, not only just a multi-unit, but a large restaurant. You know, we have restaurants that do very, very high revenue and the oversight can't be as fine as when you're an owner operator with three line cooks, you know? So yeah, that was an incredibly difficult learning learning experience, but I learned it really quickly um, because the first menu that we put out was you know, what is a pinch? Well, a pinch to you is something different than a pinch to somebody else. And, uh, you know, what is reduce it 10%? Well, that's subjective too. Or, you know, whisk this in when it looks like blank. And it's like, well, really? Like, guy, what? just tell me what to do in the steps and I'll do it. Um, and I, I learned that really quickly. Um, yeah, so we understand. And, and the caveat to that, though, is, now we have the opposite problem, whereas we do these recipes in a controlled environment, in a silo. I have a test kitchen in Asheville that is just for R&D and just for us. And I'm not the one that's doing it when they're trying to, you know, do a 500-person brunch. And so there is the expectation of, all right, we have to deliver this recipe and this method to these store teams, but they need to be able to execute it under pressure. Um, and we'll never understand that until we give it to them under pressure. So now, you know, we do, we basically pilot every menu 
in a one or two stores ahead of time just to say, okay, you know, I know Eric can make a French omelet in 35 seconds on the stovetop, but can my teams do it when we have 1,200 covers for lunch or brunch? Um, and so, yeah, I would say I learned that lesson early on. It was a very hard lesson to learn. It took me a while to kind of um, get there, even though I knew I had to get there really quickly. Now, you've talked about how beloved and how special the original Tupelo is to Asheville and how this was like a landmark for that city. It's it, like it's in the DNA of, it, of that place. It, 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 it's it is something yeah. that's very, very special. Replicating that and taking that to different cities, mm -hmm. especially ones that are outside the South, I would imagine is incredibly difficult is the word that I'm settling on, but maybe you just have to be like hyper-intentional about that. How, how do you take this, this special thing and kind of pull out a little bit of that DNA and plant it in other cities? Because the cynic would say, okay, you're, you're just, throw, you know, you're trying to take something that's special here and you're just throwing it in other cities and hoping that it works. I know that's not what you guys are doing. So how do you try and take this thing that was one unit and was so beloved and special and put it in other markets? So I think it has a lot to do with the strategy from early on, right? Yeah, we're at 22 restaurants now, but I think restaurant two through seven set the tone um, of how to kind of combat that. So when we started at Tupelo, we opened the one in, in uh, downtown Asheville. The second one was in South Asheville, which is kind of a, about a 15 minute drive in one of the like suburban communities. Um, and then they kind of just expanded all drivable distance in a circle outside of Asheville. So Asheville is a great location to live in. I'm blessed to be there. Within two hours, you're in Knoxville, Tennessee, and UT. Within two hours, you're at Charlotte. Within three hours, you're in Atlanta. Within an hour, you're in Greenville or Johnson City in Bristol, Tennessee. Um, so all of these, not major metropolitan markets, some more so than others, but definitely 65% of the tourism that comes into Asheville is drivable distance tourism. Um, so people, I mean, that's changed a little bit now, but then, um, so we knew that when we expanded within driving distance, the people would have known Tupelo. Cause if you've come to Asheville and you live in those areas, you have, you know then it. you know, Tupelo, mm -hmm. at least in the early stages and, and still, you know, we hope for that today. So I think that, that very smart method of starting the expansion was what kind of helped us to now be able to come to an Omaha or a Denver or a Texas, um, because, you know, as tourism in Asheville has grown exponentially, I think it was 2019, uh, tourism in Asheville clip, eclipsed the Outer Banks of North Carolina, which is that whole region of the, the coast in tourism. And Asheville is a small town, and the Outer Banks are 20 miles of, of kind of Oceanside. Um, and so we, we just knew that, that the more and more that, uh, that tourism grew in Asheville, the more and more it would be our restaurant group would be accepted in further and further away cities. Um, and that seems to have been the case. I mean, I was in Dallas, Texas two weeks ago in a CVS five miles from Tupelo and someone tapped me on the shoulder because I had the shirt on and it was like, I just went there in Asheville and I loved it. I was like, yeah, man, that's awesome. Great. <laughs> uh, and that happens all the time. Our, our CEO says that even when he travels internationally, if he has a hat on or, or something like that, someone will tap him on the shoulder and say they've been to Tupelo. Uh, just recently happened in New Zealand of all places. He's wow. Um, so yeah, we're, uh, we're blessed to have had that following and uh, that strong start. And that has definitely given us a boost to kind of expand outward. I could seriously talk to you all day, Eric. Thanks, like, man. This has I been appreciate such it. Such a pleasure. 
We are running a little low on time, but I've got to ask you two questions that I like to ask everyone that I have on this podcast, and I'm especially interested to hear your responses because you have more of a national view Mm -hmm. and maybe more of a wide-ranging view. You've had multiple roles in the industry. So first question, what is one thing about the restaurant industry that you think diners don't understand that you wish they did? Huh. One thing that diners don't understand that I... I think... You know, I, hmm, that's a really great question and a loaded one at that. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, I, you can. It doesn't have to be one. If you want to go in multiple sure, directions, I you would can. just say I'm trying to figure out a way to to bring this all together. I would say that um, we are in an industry of extremes. Um, knives and fire. I mentioned, and you know, whatever. It is a very hard environment and a rewarding one to be a part of as an employee and as a cook. Um, and as a server and, and whatever, I would say most people, in, and I mentioned this to you off air, Omaha's the nicest town I've, <laughs> I've been in in a long time, and the people have been wonderful and great. Um, but I, I would like the, the, if the customer put themselves in, in, the, in the employee shoes a little bit more, um, I think the world would be a better place. I always say, and I say this to my kids, I think every Every young adult should work in the restaurant industry for a year, retail for a year, and live in a major metropolitan city for a year. And if they did all three of those things, the world would be a better place. They would understand how to live broke with and, and in a hard environment. They would understand customer service from retail, and they would understand um, fast-paced customer service and kind of you give what you get in the restaurant world. And I think um, we take for granted sometimes that the employees that we have – I mean, everybody has a struggle. Um, you know, alcoholism and drug abuse is rampant in the restaurant industry. Um, and we do our best to, to try to mitigate that and, and take into account mental health for every one of our employees. And I think um, the, the guest could have, a, 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 have that knowledge a little bit, too, and just know that, uh, I mean, we wouldn't be here without them, and we're so appreciative of it. Um, but I think we can all acknowledge that a little bit more. A little compassion, a little yeah. understanding, a little less nasty Yelp reviews. Yeah, you know, <laughs> Yelp has its place, too. <laughs> uh, and then to get you out of here on a positive note, and I think I probably know the answer to this question based off of our conversation, but I like to keep it open-ended anyway. Go. What's your favorite part about being a part of the restaurant industry? Uh, the people. Uh, I mean, the amount of relationships that I've garnered over the course of... I started when I was 14, so... Too many years to count, 28. Um, it, the, the people is, is what makes the difference. I met my wife at uh, Tabla, a restaurant in, uh, in uh, Madison Square Park that Danny Meyer ran. It was an Indian restaurant. Um, we still have multiple friends from those days and all the way back to uh, my first restaurant. So it's, it's the, definitely the people. Um, yeah, I love the food. Yeah, I love everything that goes with it. Um, but the relationships that you build are just second to none like that's that's what keeps you going Mm -hmm. me going that's what keeps me going well eric i'm so grateful that you took the time to come on the podcast today very very excited for for tupelo i mean like you said this is a place that just has a very rich history a very ardent uh following and to be able to take that to different parts of the country i mean i'm going to be perfectly honest like i 
Omaha does not have a lot of great Southern restaurants, in my opinion. We we have some good ones, and it's definitely growing. But adding a place like Tupelo just makes our um, restaurant community that much stronger and I think more well-rounded. Thank you for your hard work and and helping to bring it to this place. And thanks for coming on the podcast today. Absolutely. My pleasure. We're excited to be here. We're open. Come see us. Um, We have a great general manager named Josh Need, who has been with us through four locations and an excellent chef in that location named Hunter Bouchong, who comes to us uh, to Omaha from our Nashville, Tennessee location. Um, So they're well versed in Tupelo and really ready to make you happy with food and beverage and all the things that make it fun. So come hungry because you won't leave hungry and uh, come have a good time. Sounds like a plan. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. Pleasure was all mine. Awesome. Omaha, as always, thanks for eating with us. A Huda Media Production.